I remember the first realization of what street performance was for me personally, and I know it's not what everybody else goes through. But for me, it was, well, if you can ignore me, I can completely ignore me too. I like the feeling of being invisible and hiding behind something. And that became my signature, hiding behind puppets. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. My name is David Aiken, I'm the Checkerboard Guy, and I'm your host for this growing collection of interviews and stories produced by the Busker Hall of Fame. For this episode, Eric Amber sat down in Lee Zimmerman's home in Delaware to shed some light on Lee's incredible journey in the world of showbiz. I first met Lee in the early 90s at the Edmonton Fringe Festival. He was wearing these cool Elvis Presley print jeans, had long wavy hair, was rocking out shows with his Hollywood stock rock and roll marionette tribute, and was saving up enough cash to marry his playboy, playmate of the year, girlfriend. Not only was the world his oyster, he seemed to be landing pearls at every turn. Lee's resume reads like a who's who of Hollywood. He's worked on some of the most prestigious stages and for some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry. For many, this would be considered making it. But Lee's connection to the others, as he calls his street theater brethren, should not be underestimated. Perhaps it was the savvy he picked up doing shows on the street that allowed him to succeed in the entertainment capital of the world. Maybe it was his comedic sensibility that caught the eye of so many of Hollywood's movers and shakers. Whatever the combination, Lee has lived a life driven by a rock and roll sensibility that's filled with some incredible stories from the pitch. Welcome to Delaware, Eric Amber. Thanks, Lee Zimmerman. It's funny that I'm here, actually, because uh, you grew up with Glenn Singer. Very few people know this. Glenn and I are uh, from the exact same water supply, so there must be something in it. We were raised one block apart, half a block apart, actually. My brother and my three sisters, we each corresponded doppelganger style. Oldest daughter, Glenn and Drew, two middle daughters, Lee and Dave. Two sets of best friends from the same families. It's kind of cool. So um, let's talk about you growing up. You grew up here in Delaware. I did. I was the youngest of five. Everybody in my family had some sort of uh, creative gift. My father was a singer of some note. He sang for presidents. He sang for vice presidents. He was a local actor. He worked at all kinds of regional theater. Took it really far. My sister Andrea, opera singer. Lived in England as an opera singer. Went to Tanglewood College of Music, Hart College of Music. Scholarships. She was a total musician person. My brother drew. Brilliant artist. Kind of a wiener. <laughs> my biggest influence. And then my sister, Laurie. I mean, we all had some sort of little thing to offer. Mine was uh, drawing. My dad could paint. My dad could draw. And that was part of the inspiration. Then my brother got a hold of me. He's kind of the guy. Just said, you will be an artist. And as soon as he programmed me for any job, I would putter off and do it, even if it was, go put your fingers in the jello and make sure it's hard enough for us to eat. <laughs> this is my genius brother. I'll do anything they said. So he said, go art it up, which is what I did. Went to art school in Philly. While I was in Philly, I started doing the show. What did you take at art school? I was being groomed to be an advertising person. So I have a degree in visual communications slash advertising design. I can see that in your work, uh, visual communication. Well, thank you very much. What I wanted to be was a fine artist. I knew that I could kind of draw. I was only kind of good at stuff, but I was pretty good at coming up with slogans and wordplay and images and composition. I just couldn't render very well. It's kind of still the case, if I'm perfectly honest with myself. 
It's never been what I see in my head while I was there becoming. Well, I only found out like the, the third week there. You mean we're studying to be advertising? I thought, we, when do we paint? When do we draw? When do we sculpt? None of these things were in the cards. I'd been rookered because not very smart. And especially when I was 18, not at all smart. So you want to know how I then leapt into the, the Hendrix thing? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It goes hand in hand with being in an art school. Uh, my brother had taught me, again, do whatever my brother says. He was learning how to make paper mache marionettes. And he said, for your birthday, I'm going to teach you how to make marionettes. What would you like? I said, Jimi Hendrix. And I was just obsessed with him like crazy. I was 14, 15 years old. I used to make guitars for my G.I. Joes when I was a little kid because I was raised on the Beatles. I was raised on Woodstock, the record and stuff. So I made guitars for my G.I. Joes, which is exactly pretty much what I do for a living. And so he taught me. He would make an arm, then I'd make an arm. He'd make a leg, then I'd make a leg. Show me how to make it. Made it all wrong. And finished his Hendrix puppet, messed around with it while I was in high school, and then again, it was just the decoration. But then I started doing it on the street for coin, and that's how I was paying for art supplies and food, was just using this one Hendrix puppet. Because I convinced myself the very first day, like people were walking by and they weren't looking at me, and I didn't talk for the first year. I just did the puppet staring straight down, straight down at the puppet, never looked up, just a little bucket out, put your money in my little coffee tin, and... uh I convinced myself that very day. If they think I'm invisible, then I guess I'm invisible. I can absolutely tolerate being ignored because I'll just pretend I'm ignoring me too. And it was an amazing feeling. And what gave you the idea to do it in the first place, like on the street, I mean? I was in art school. My brother suggested, you know, you got that puppet. Why don't we go out and try and do something? I was in the newspaper my first week. And I thought, maybe it's better than advertising. Finish the degree. And the only thing I had that was making money was the puppet thing. So I stuck with that. And you said you had a girlfriend uh, when you were already going to art school. I had a great girlfriend in art school. She kind of encouraged me. She was the one who said, you got to start talking. You're funny. I think it was in my second or third year before I opened my mouth up to the audience and started talking. Till then, I just had an Elton John puppet. I had a Jimi Hendrix puppet. I had a Tina Turner puppet. I just kept growing the little show that I had. Only on things that I liked. I wouldn't build anything I didn't like. Michael Jackson was hitting that same year, 1983. From the very first newspaper interview, he was like, why don't you make Michael Jackson? I said, because he sucks. I would have made boatloads. It was his summer. He was everywhere. All I had to do was have a puppet that could moonwalk, and I would have made boatloads, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I would have to hear it. Years later, and I actually think some of his stuff is really good, and I'm really ashamed that I couldn't pull it together. But at the time, he defied what I was going for, which was serious, hardcore rock. How did you end up leaving Philadelphia? Okay, so uh, Katie and I are the art school couple, right? I graduate. We're together a couple more years. Classic Catholic. She has to cheat because no big deal. You just go to God the next day. You say, God, I'm sorry. And he goes, no problem. Go do it again, and I'll see you next week. So that was her attitude. She had sex with my brother. What? <laughs> Ongoing affair. That's how I found out. And this is at a time when we were trying to be a duo act. Him with his Bowie and me with my Hendrix. And it just was not going to happen after that. So completely out of spite. I decided to become really good. This is a true story. Because my brother pissed me off so severely that I decided to take it up a, a whole other notch and I started really focusing on this thing and I was going to make it big. So then uh, I was single for a while, really enjoying growing my hair long. It was the perfect time to have your hair long. And I was becoming what I'd always wanted to be, which is kind of like a freaky, rock and roll-y guy with, you know, the 
whole rock and roll, drinking, drugging, hot, blonde, whatever you can get your hands on girlfriend thing until around 88. And then I met this really spectacular Swedish model chick, Lisa. In order to stay with Lisa, two years later, I would have to move to San Francisco or we'd break up. I'd always wanted to live in California, so I followed her. Followed her ass out to California because it was a really good one. It was great. <laughs> get to California, get to San Francisco. And I thought San Francisco and L.A. were kind of like near each other. I didn't really, I don't know why I didn't know. Didn't think to look closer to the map. That's seven hours from L.A., which is where I wanted to be. We were in San Francisco, which happens to be the greatest city in the world. It really is my favorite place, bar none. But after being there six months and she fires me, it was her city. I couldn't stay. It's like, we came here to be together in this city. Now we're not together. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Out of spite, my favorite motivator, I'm going to go to Los Angeles in my ninth year of show business. I'm going to fucking show everybody. Because all I have to do is one thing. I swear to God, this is my absolute thought. I'm telling you the truth. I'm really not laying it on for an interview. This is the absolute truth. To me, the pinnacle was all I had to do was work at the improv. If I could just work at the improv one time and get an applause, just a decent show, I'm in, I'm gone. Then I would validate that the nine years I'd put into this thing was it. I was worthy of being on, in my opinion, and a lot of people's opinion, the number one nightclub stage in the universe. You're on at nine o'clock on Friday nights. You've made it to show business kids. All I had to do was that one set and turn into a two-year stretch. Within six weeks of hitting L.A., because I was so pissed off, so brokenhearted, 246 bucks, 246 bucks. Six weeks later, working on Venice, got picked up off a guy from Venice, thrown up on the stage of the improv, came a regular that night, out of spite. <laughs> but you, the first thing you did when you got to L.A. was go down to Venice Beach. First thing, yeah. First I sorted it out, I looked at it. My buddy Barry Gould, the great Barry Gould, was uh, somebody I'd worked with at Pier 39. That's what I did in the eight months that I, six to eight months that I was there. I was working Pier 39 in the cannery, and I got tight with Barry Gould, who said, I'm going to make phone calls for you so that they don't treat you the way they would if you were just a douchebag showing up on Venice. He called Mad Chad Taylor, the chainsaw juggler, really great guy. But he wasn't looking to have a neighbor. Who would? You're a street performer. You got, there's limited space on Venice. And Barry made the call. He goes, okay. Treat Lee well. So I get there, and it's Michael Collier. Do you ever hear the name Michael Collier? Making about a grand a day, being just a stand-up, no props, nothing. Stood on a milk crate, total Venice, real L.A. And in his heyday was Venice Beach, represented what it was to be a free guy, standing on a milk crate, making boatloads of cash. Michael Collier, he later on broke into proper show business and did clubs in his own TV show. But it was because of Barry Gould that they treated me with even a modicum of decency and let me share a really crappy pitch let's talk about venice beach one of the f most famous street pitches in the world oh, yeah. well i didn't think i was going to go over because i was sure that a chainsaw juggler and the guy with fire and a uh, guy rolling on glass and a guy holding the washing machine on his chin there's no way they're going to go for an esoteric little nuance thing that's this big that you can barely see and it just was perfect fit. It was a good summer. Uh, 91, Nirvana was hitting. Uh, Soundgarden was hitting. Really great heavy-duty rock and roll is coming out. People are really interested in rock and roll. People are really dressing rock and roll. They're coming down off the hair period, which is where I was standing there with my long... I was basing it on Led Zeppelin long hair, but everybody else was going with Bon Jovi long hair. That was changing into grunge. 
It was just a solid. Everywhere you looked was some sort of rock and roll expression. It was it was still a live, living entity. Rock and roll was really important. So there I was in Venice, in the heart of it. People were wearing it. People were living it. People were listening to it. And I was actually trying to sell it. I was selling a little hard. I mean, I was selling softer. Tina's not exactly hard for the most average guy, unless you're me. But the show was always about rock and that fit Venice. Can you describe what Venice Beach is like? Okay, I can tell you about 91, and I can tell you about 1999. In 91, it was what I dreamed it would be. Every couple of feet, somebody would set up either a towel with their art or a towel with their bracelets or a towel with their beads for your hair, or they would be a performer or they'd play the guitar or they'd be a tarot reader. And it was really communal. And there was, there was some rivalry. There was some fighting over real estate. Not too much. People welcomed me, and it wasn't just because Barry had sent out the word. There were other guys. They were nice. I made friends. Uh, I, I graduated from it. Years later, when I needed cash, I went back to Venice with my wife, Deborah. We get down there, and now it is the most crooked place in the universe, and it is entirely run by guys selling incense. And we were warned about that. We were warned not to mess with them. Because they owned the Venice police, which I never thought was possible. I always take that stuff with a grain of salt. It can't possibly be like the movies. It's true in Venice. They are owned and operated. Those incense, aluminum foil balls, that's not incense. And uh, I tried to fight with that. There's a break in that road case you're looking at. Right over there, there's a little corner missing. Because I was there on time. I won the lottery. I was ready to set up. I set up where I was supposed to set up. And that second that I did that... The guy next to me selling incense just took the case and threw it on the cement and pushed all my gear out of the way. It was physical confrontation to let me know, there's no way you're setting up here today. There is no way. And when we went to the cops, the cops kind of shrugged. I, I showed them, you know, that I was supposed to be there, lottery, I'm, I'm the guy. You can fight it if you want. We're not in. Total nightmare. So it went from a really great art circle to this uh, terrible, terrible criminal place. And it had become that way. It wasn't supposed to be that way. It was supposed to be a collection of artists. I got the very tail end of it. Evidently, I missed a real glory time. Just like, uh, you know, um, I came in the generation after, I guess, Butterfly Man and uh, your Wheeler Coles and all the other guys that invented Pier 39 and carried it all those years. I came right on the end of that. Like it was just dwindling off. And then I went to L.A. and just caught the end of Venice. And then uh, it turned into Santa Monica's Promenade which was the best. I was like the second street performer working that, and that was huge. And then that just became impossible because of jugglers. Do you think there's a future for a street performing in America? There's never been a really solid place to do it. It's amazing. When I was in Philadelphia, there was no license, and I tried to get one. In the nine years that I was there, it was the same scenario every time. I would set up a place. It would be no problem. I would actually go to the cops and say, is it okay if I'm here? They would pretend they didn't see it. That was the policy. There is no law, so we're just not going to do it. I didn't know that Pier 39 was out there happening, and that was a real protected place. As far as I knew, there was that. There was Baltimore's Inner Harbor. I knew about the scene in New York, which I was too afraid of, too intimidated by. There was never a proper scene. You know that Penn and Teller started in Philadelphia, same corner as me, Headhouse Square, 2nd and Lombard. They pioneered turning it into a spot that briefly... Had a bunch of street performers, but we don't take care of them like y'all do in uh, Canada and Europe. Street performers are lowly bums with, uh, you know, with no real job. That's how it's seen here. It's just not the same. So Penn and Teller were doing street shows. Don't totally doing street shows on the steps of Headhouse Square, 
and a huge reputation. Like even before they became national, they were widely known in Philly, and I knew about them. And then you know you'd see them on local shows. You know who else I saw back in that day? Still to this day, one of my absolute all-time idols, Tom Noddy, the bubble guy, bubble man, Tom Noddy, such an idol of mine because I saw him on the street, and then the next night I saw him on PBS doing bubbles for the Franklin Institute about uh, the mathematical shapes that he could produce using bubbles. Love that guy. And again, another guy, the concept of making a living making bubbles and putting smoke inside of them, that just blew my mind. Another gypsy is out there. I'm sure he could get a normal job, but what he wanted to do with his life was invent a job. That blew me away. Yeah, so I knew about Penn & Teller. I knew about that guy. I had heard about Butterfly Guy from people like Glenn. So while you're in L.A., you're doing Venice Beach, and then you go to the improv. Guy comes up out of the audience. He says, "Uh, I know a guy at the improv. You're too good for the streets. i got to get you out to the streets, man. This is a waste of time. And I've been giving out business cards like crazy. I was, I mean, I don't like to brag, but it happens to be the case. I was super hot. Because I'd rehearsed elsewhere, because I didn't develop in L.A., I just showed up with something that was kind of done. Not entirely, but it was kind of together. It had a lot more impact than had I been raised in Venice and gone out, added, and learned, and grown. No, I just dropped out of the sky the way I wanted to, and it immediately hit. And this one guy, Richard Wainer, said, I got a buddy. He can hook you up with the improv. He books the acts of the improv, and he has to see you. So I go up, and uh, before, before I go up, terribly, terribly nervous. I did the improv in Santa Monica, standing ovation, but that wasn't the same. That wasn't exactly being at the Melrose. So he said, we're sending you Melrose. Ten-minute showcase. You have to kill. You have to kill. I'm standing there with Bud Friedman, and I'd been in L.A. all those six weeks, but I hadn't seen the Hollywood sign. But Friedman sees that I'm spazzing out. I'm getting ready to go on stage. He says, why don't you take a walk, man? You, you look like you're going to have a car in there. He's like, great idea. Walked out the front door of the improv, turned right, started walking up towards Fairfax. I'm just like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe this is happening now. All I got to do is this one thing, and I can quit show business. I seriously believed that all I had to do to validate the entire nine years, actually, the entire 26 years I'd been around, all I wanted to do was just this one good set. Just had to be decent. And then I was fine. I'd actually done what I wanted. And as I come walking up on Fairfax, I look to my left, and there's the Hollywood sign. Not seeing it the whole time I'd lived there. Not even from far away, because I was in Venice. You can't see it exactly. See the Hollywood sign, and I'm, uh, just, I started to run over my head how I had worked for this and how it was possible and how I was actually within the realm of possibility that I could do this. I'm seeing the Hollywood sign. I'm not that far from it for the first time in my life. And I'm on Melrose, and I'm at the place that I'd shot at, I'd aimed at. It was the one place I wanted to be. And there I was, walking back in, freaking out, terrified. Take the show up, open with Jimmy. Always open with my finale when I'm not sure how it's going to go. And within minutes, man, it was just working. It was just working. It was clicking. I was hitting it as hard as I could. I gave them the best I could give them that night, which was about an 8. But they were treating it like it was a 12. Standing up, freaking out, loving it. And I do know the best moment of my entire life. Hendrix knocks over the amp, I let go of the puppet, it drops, split-second pregnant pause, and then this huge, huge loud response, and they stood straight up, knocked the air out of my chest, I swear, and I could feel it washing over me, and I had to step down behind my stage and tear up like I'm kind of doing now, because it blows me away. That moment was everything, in that one moment, that one brief millisecond, 
was everything. It's the moment that every other moment of my life gets compared to. And you were talking in those days. By then I was talking. But that night was the first night I ever worked with a hardwire mic. So I go up. It's wild. I go up with my Hendrix and David Byrne. That's all I got. They're laying on the stage. I've never had to make a transition with a, a stage already constructed and walk through an audience. I'm holding my stage way up over the audience. I'm like, this is not going to work. I go up and there's the mic stand. And I've been screaming on the street, but I don't know how to use a mic. So I kind of moved it over, and I'm going to lean into it. I don't know what I'm going to do exactly. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I muttered into the mic, I can't believe they got a puppet show at the improv. Something like that. Really nervous. And they giggled nervous. They were like, oh, fuck, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's not supposed to be here. That's what the charm of it was, that I brought something good, but I was terrified, clearly terrified. That's what took him on the ride was, we're watching this guy live out his fantasy. Let's hope he doesn't fuck up. So they were so with it. That's why it went the way that it went. After that first night, pulls me aside by Freeman and he goes, well, first of all, stop wearing such tight jeans. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that. And what wants you to come in and start working with a microphone. So technically, I did not speak that first night except for in between songs. And I muttered something at the top and I muttered something in the middle. And other than that, the best part, though, is they let out Finnish Hendrix that, wow. And I'm standing there and I cannot talk. <laughs> I duck behind to pick up David Byrne and I wipe my eyes and I'm coming back up and I'm standing there and they're still applauding and Mark Lano, the other owner of the improv, opens up the sound man's mic. He's, I could see him in the light by the sound man. He opens his mic and he goes, I think we found someone just to give me a second to pull it together and they're really into it. I get really emotional when I think about it because it was like all I'd ever wanted and it's still kind of all I'd ever wanted. <laughs> How long did you stay at the improv? Two years. And within weeks, I did really the career wonder of my life. First night, they said, you might not need the puppets. By the sixth or seventh appearance, they're like, you know, we'd like you to MC. And I said, what am I going to do? Bring the stage up every time? They're like, no, no, don't even use the puppets. Plus, uh, the very first night, he offered me a guy to shoot my photos because I didn't have any, and management. Do you have proper management? And I looked across the table at this nice guy who had used his friendship to get me in. And I said, yeah, he wants me to be my manager. And he was offering me Brillstein, Bernie Brillstein, Seinfeld, Andy Kaufman, <laughs> the number one guy you could possibly get, Bernie Brillstein. And I was saying no out of loyalty to Richard Weiner, who then just went back to his editing job at Venice Magazine. It wasn't really his passion. So I, stupid first move. Second one was not taking him up on their offers to develop the show without. And over the next two years, I just hung around with stand-ups that I didn't like. I admired all these guys. First night I went up, Bill Maher, John Lovitz, Roseanne was the person who I think followed me second, and four comics later was Jerry Seinfeld. It was some sort of extravaganza. Everybody was just doing like five or ten minutes. I don't know why, but it was some special night. That's what my showcase was. These guys didn't want a, a variety guy doing well, and the classic street performer story, put a street performer up and watch him do well and watch all the street guys who don't use fucking props lose their minds not because you're copping out because you're doing well fucking hated that and bill maher was a turd every time i saw him and he made my life uncomfortable there and i should have been really happy because i was killing every time i went up i hate to sound like a braggart truth is i kept a journal of every single show and i rated them one to ten and i would rate it how well i did knowing what i could do versus the response and i loved it and it was always really really solid and I still decided I couldn't keep going. They were making it too unfun. It was not fun. 
So you decided to stop doing it? No. What happened is, in the start of the second year that I'm at the Improv, my friend Mickey O'Connor says, I want to get you to Edmonton Street Performers Festival. And I went to Edmonton, took a few weeks off from working in uh, Universal Studios, Universal City Walk, because I went from Venice to Santa Monica's Promenade, then Promenade kind of closed down for me because they wouldn't allow amplification. Go to City Walk, and Mickey goes, come on, we're going to Canada. You're going to love it here. You're going to work for Dick Finkel. Nicest producer you'll ever meet. Get there, and I meet the others. I finally meet myself. They weren't stand-ups in the Melrose. No. Within minutes of being in Edmonton, among my kind, that year was a stellar lineup. You got David Aiken, Flying Bob, Green Fools, my lifelong friend Dean Bearham, Christine Cook. Uh, just every major heavy hitter. Bill Ferguson was there. Everybody that could possibly be there. And... I was hanging out in the green room, and I was with my own kind. And for the first time in my entire life, I had had proper conversation. I didn't know, even know that there were conversations like the ones that I had for the next two weeks. Because I didn't know there were others. I didn't know there were gypsies like myself of the exact same kind who fit in so poorly in the universe they had to invent a job for themselves. <laughs> the only way they were going to get to make it in the universe is to make one up for themselves. Well, I've got this skill set. I think I'll make a show out of it. And now I'm meeting them and hanging with them going... I hate Bill Maher. I love you guys. So by the end of the next year, I had all these opportunities that I'd done well in Edmonton. Come back. Do Halifax. Do uh, Just for Laughs. Here you did really well. Go to Just for Laughs. Again. Now I'm with street performers and stand-up. So I can do the immediate contrast and compare right there. I'm with street performers over here that I'm loving. And dickheaded, most of the most of them, not all of them. No, some of them are great. Danny Gould, love me. Love Danny Gould. Now produces the, the Simpsons. Great guys, but most of them were absolute twats. And over here, street performers who were like a kinship, who were like a brotherhood, like a real family that I had lacked in the conversations. That's what made me addicted to doing street performing festivals. I was never a good street performer. Never. I didn't start out as one. I don't know how to gather a crowd. I have the worst hat line in the world. If Pee Wee ever heard this, he'd remember that he used to have to come over and do my hat line. He would come over as I was getting ready to do my finale. Put his hands in front of my mic. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed the show. I don't know about you, but in my opinion, he's the greatest puppeteer I've ever seen. Now, uh, and he would lead him and he would get, and he would bump up my hat by like 60, 70 bucks. Because I don't know how to street perform. I knew how to club perform, but I love street performers. And that was it. I started doing street performing festivals, which I'm not equipped to do. And I found that out worse and worse last year. I'm so ill-equipped to do that. But you put me on a real stage, I'm so at home. Just can't do the gather, can't do the hat, can't do any of that shit. I hate it. Race to the finish. So it's the show business part that you didn't really well, like the most. Not, uh, a, yeah, I'm terrible at money. I've never been motivated by it. Um, that's the other thing. One of the reasons my hat line sucks so bad. I'm so concerned with whether or not you like me, I forget to get paid for you liking me. I always think that way. And I'm, I'm pretty lame. I mean, it's a real character flaw. Constant neediness. But it's not that part of it. It's not the actual dollars and cents and paperwork. It's the way they behaved. It's the way people behaved in certain show businesses. There I was in Hollywood, 20 years. I saw every little facet of actual show business there is. It's the people, not the business. I met some wonderful people, but I, I met every stereotypical Los Angelino out to stab you in the back and steal it from you. Every one of them. Never thought that would be possible. I thought it was all made up. 
It's all true. Every bit of it. Yeah, you also had lived a bit of a uh, Hollywood rock star life. I mean, is it true you married a Playboy Playmate? A, a this- Playboy Playmate of the year, which is 11 better. That goes to 11. <laughs> There's 12 of them. She's the best of them. And not only that, to go back to Glenn Singer, she was the on the cover of the very first Playboy I ever saw. Dave Singer and I break into Mr. Singer's bathroom. We get this Playboy out. I look at the cover and I say to Dave Singer, one day I'm going to marry this woman as a joke. I remember it vividly because it's the first Playboy. I'd seen them, but I'd never actually been able to like be with one. <laughs> and I announced to the world I would marry Deborah Jo Fonder, which I did. It took me uh, 14 years, 14 years to seal that deal. Uh-huh. But you sealed it. Fucking A, man. I never leave anything undone. I'll tell you another one. The girl that I had a crush on in high school before I left, when I made that Hendrix puppet, took it into school. I was showing her off to this chick, Lori. All I ever wanted was Lori. 34 years it took me to close that deal. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Lori. <laughs> Did you ever see yourself doing something else? There were only two things I ever wanted to be. I wanted to be a rock star or I wanted to be a stand-up. I was doing both. I was married to a, a Playboy model. I was drinking and smoking and, you know, running with some heavy hitters. I was at the Playboy Mansion. I was doing all the rock star stuff you could possibly do. These are the only two things I wanted to do. Make jokes and make music. That's all I ever wanted to do. Now I kind of do both. So talk about the Playboy Mansion. Let's. What's your image of the Playboy Mansion? What do you see in your head? What do you see in your head? Like, what do you imagine the Playboy Mansion was like at its peak? Because that's what it was like. <laughs> it's exactly that. Yeah, I'm looking in your head. I'm seeing the image you have of freewheeling sex. It's back and now. It's, it's everything you thought it would be. Plus, it's celebrities having sex in the grotto. That's what I liked best. Carrie Wurr, who I had a huge crush on. I got to watch her uh, ride some guy in the grotto. That was awesome. My first night at the mansion. This is the other second best moment of my life. I know the top two moments of my life. You want to know the second one? First date to the Playboy Mansion with Deborah Jo Fonner, movie night. Sunday nights, every night, half runs whatever movie's out. There with Deborah Jo, and she says, we don't want to watch a movie. We went out to the grotto. This is when Hep was married to Kimberly Conrad, famous Canadian. <laughs> he didn't party. There were no lingerie parties. He was married. It was straight. It was normal. There was none of that shit. Deborah didn't care. She didn't care if it was the last time we were ever at the Playboy Mansion. We went out, and we... Got naked, swam around in the grotto, and you could swim out this cave. There's this tunnel that goes out from the inside of the grotto, which, by the way, the grotto, tons of pictorials down there. There's a jacuzzi where people can sit in a circle. There's a jacuzzi that's shaped like a couch. They're all linked together like this little wooden stone grotto. Different shapes of jacuzzis. Then you can swim through this tunnel out into the main pool area. Go out in a perfect June night. I'm having sex in the grotto. Naked Playboy Playmate, look up at billions of stars you can see from Homeby Hills that you can't see anywhere else in L.A. No lights. That was the second most perfect moment of my entire life. About a month ago, I sat down and I recreated a list of things that I dreamed about doing since the age of six. Between the ages of six and 27, I developed 30 things that I absolutely were on my bucket list. I Just dreams that I had, and I have to date cleared 28 of them. And almost every one of those was by the time I turned 30. How old are you now? 51. So what happened between 30 and 51? Uh, 
I, I came up with a couple of new bucket stuff, and I did those. One was to do a major television show, like a network television show, and, and be really, really taken seriously on it, not just like a blip, not like an extra. And that happened. Drew Carey show. I made ten puppets. They did an entire special contest episode. And uh, I was the, the centerpiece and the tag at the end and a little blip in the center. So there were three visits to my little thing. It was a spot the mistakes episode, and the mistake in my case was the entire cast has now turned into marionettes. They spent over $500,000 just recreating the miniature office where he worked. My motto was to say yes to anything they ask, and when they said, can you make ten puppets in three weeks, I said yes, even though at that time it took me about a week to make it still. If I want to make them right, it takes about a week to make one. But I did it. Whipped that out. It was, that was one of the bucket list things. That happened after 31. And uh, there were a couple more. Travel, see Malaysia, see Singapore. I was so wrong about those places. <laughs> places I would never go back to. Singapore, armpit of the universe. But you're still doing it and you're still loving your show. Totally loving my show. You know what happened to me between the ages of 30 and 51? Actually, uh, right around the age of 36. Yeah, I know exactly when. 36. Neil Rempel, young Raoul started a circus and magic program, the circus camp, for uh, kids at risk. And uh, I got in on the second year, and I was working with Dave Aiken. I was working with Dean Bearham at Green Fools. I was working with Mookie Cornish. I was working with Master Lee. I was working with some extraordinary people trying to teach kids at risk. Bill Ferguson was there. Uh, later on, Butterfly Man was a part of it. And teaching. The first year... I regarded it as what I thought Neil was trying to do, just get all his buddies together, throw some work, and I had a good time. Second year, I noticed that something else was happening, and I said it to him. And I, I got really emotional when I said it to him. I said, I, I think we're having an impact on these kids' lives. They're at high risk for suicide. They're at high risk for gang activity. They ship them in. We go to a school in Winnipeg, and they bring in the most troubled kids they can find that they can count on to be in a program for a week, we see some seriously hardcore, abused, neglected kids. And that has really changed my life over the last 17 years. has been discovering that I love teaching almost as much as anything else. Because of some of the stuff that happened to me when I was a kid, I can recognize things in the tiniest little behaviors in a kid that I totally pick up on, that uh, I recognize myself. Things that happen to me that I know. I can see in your eyes. I can see in what you just said. And the most extraordinary thing about marionettes and hand puppets, most amazing thing is when uh, when you teach a unicycle, the kid becomes a unicycle rider. When you teach juggling, the kid learns how to juggle. When you give a kid a puppet, he instantly creates a character, either the one that it looks like. Let's say you hand him an Elmo. He tries to do the Elmo voice. Let's say you hand him a, just a guy. Now he's going to become that character. Within five minutes, you know so much about that kid by what he thinks that character is going to say or do. And sometimes they'll reveal things like abuse. Sometimes... Within two minutes, somebody's biting somebody else. Somebody's kicking somebody else with that puppet. And I stop him and I say, because instantly you see who's violent and who isn't and who thinks that way like that. Their first reaction to everything. And I just go through the room and I suss it out and I say, stop. We don't do violence. We don't do violence. We're smart guys. We don't, we don't need violence and it's dumb. We're artists. We solve problems. And the second you do that, the second you elevate a kid in his own imagination, the second you say to him, you're an artist. You're above that. He actually goes, oh, wait a minute. I'm an artist. I'm above that. All you have to do is suggest it to him, and it comes true. So I've seen so much of my personal life has been blown through the roof with joy over teaching.
and teaching these kids in particular. We go to Indian reservations, I'm sorry, Aboriginal reservations, First Nations up north, way up, way up north of Winnipeg, way up north of Thompson, Manitoba, the conditions that you see there, the things that you hear there, the suicide that you just came in on the heels of, the dog attacks, the, you know, the res dog attacks, all the stuff that you see up there. And you know that for a couple minutes you blew into town. And if I did my job right and I leave town and somebody thought they did something right, even if you hold the puppet right, you're getting a compliment from me. This is what's changed my life in the last 15, 16 years. And it's, I think what I'm going to do with the last chapter is try and take on as many teaching opportunities as I can. And when did you move towards the Etch-A-Sketch part of your... I had always done it. The first Etch-A-Sketch I ever played with was at Glenn Singer's house. <laughs> I know. I can remember it as if it was yesterday. I drew a, uh, a guy next to a lighthouse, and his sister looked down and goes, I've never seen anybody do that with an Etch-A-Sketch before. And so as soon as you say something like that to me, I go, I did something right. And then for years, I could do this Etch-A-Sketch thing. I did it in art school, and I would freak out the teachers, and I could do this thing. I could do it really fast. I wasn't necessarily the best I've ever seen because I've seen guys since. But one time I went to Singapore, and they didn't have my luggage. And I worked for Jimmy Wong, and uh, it's the opening night, and my luggage is going to be a day late. And they have uh, drug stores. And I always thought in the back of my head, I wonder if I could make a show out of this. I went to the drugstore, and uh, they had Etch-A-Sketches. They had travel size Etch-A-Sketches. I bought three, and I went to this party, and I just walked around with Etch-A-Sketches because I had no puppets. And within hours, I realized I could be doing this, too. So I went Puppet Guy and Etch-A-Sketch Guy. Now I saw both shows. And that goes to Phil LeCon. Phil LeCon is the reason that the Etch-A-Sketch Guy really got off the ground, because he knew that I'd been able to do it. He knew that I was kidding about really doing it. He brought me in for the Waterloo Arts Festival and set me up a table. He saw it better than I saw it. He said, I'll give you a table. We'll throw a bunch of Etch-A-Sketches on it. You draw and teach people what you can do. I thought that was an okay idea. I was just doing it to hang out with him and my other friends. It worked great. And uh, the next summer I went out and got a red suit and I put Etch-A-Sketch buttons on it. I have all kinds of different Etch-A-Sketches, different styles. And it's a really fun show. And basically all it is is just another format, like the puppets were, for me to make jokes. You're back living in Delaware. <clears throat> Yikes. What brought you back to Delaware? Uh, well... My dad died right after my divorce, right after my horrible, horrible divorce. I came home to look after my dad for the last six weeks. And then I went back to L.A. And about five years later, my mom started to nosedive. And I was sick of L.A. And I was not doing well. I discovered the really ugly side of Los Angeles and decided I would come back to nice people for a little while. And it stuck. So I came back to look after my mom. I got a house near her. And she got super sick in the last year and a half of her life. So about 11 months before she died, I moved into her house and was her primary care provider. And in those years, that woman I told you about from high school, I hooked up with the woman of my dreams from high school. And five years later, coming up on five years together. So it's been hard to leave until I kind of know where she's going to be and where I want to be. And to be honest with you, all I really need to live is an airport. And you've stopped drinking. Yeah, I stopped drinking. I just was dying. I came very close to dying from drinking alcohol. I'd been sober once for three years. And I went to Glastonbury, and I threw away those three years, and it took me nine years to get it back. Nine years lost. I lost my 40s to beer. <laughs> but street performers can fall into that trap because of all that free cash and free time. It's 
amazing that that's what it is too and it's the tolerance your friends are going to be tolerant of that kind of stuff oh look he drinks first thing in the morning well he's an artist so there's a lot of excuses made for that kind of uh dangerous and irrational behavior but it's changed my life so much like i didn't give up for any other reason i was dying and i hated that guy and i feel so much better about myself but you're still pursuing your goals you're still the puppet guy thank you I would say this, that girlfriend that I moved to San Francisco with recently expressed uh, aloud to the entire world, she doesn't think, uh, just because a person has a job, that doesn't define who they are. All of her friends, this is a Facebook exchange, obviously, and then all of her friends stream, yeah, that's right, I'm not my job, I'm not a banker, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm a guy, and I do this and I do that. I'm the puppet guy. My whole life has been wrapped around the puppet guy. Ever since I became the puppet guy at the age of 19... I've just been following his ass around. He opens up the doors. He gets introduced. Lee Zimmerman's invited along. Yeah, the puppet guy. I only name myself that because that's what people call me. I used to be the paper machine. They hand you my business card, the paper machine. And my friends told me, everybody's coming over to see your show up, Third Street Promenade. Hey, it's the puppet guy. <laughs> it's the guy with the puppet, puppet guy. It's the puppet guy. I'm just living in his shadow and happy to do so. Just following that guy around. Basically, it's uh, 15 minutes of material. Just gets padded up, changed it around. One of the great things about Los Angeles, and I think one of the main motivators for going into show business as a 10-year-old, what I wanted to do was meet celebrities. Yes, Playboy Playmates. Yes, Hugh Hefner. Yes, Richard Pryor and all the other guys. And some of them I got to meet, including one of my main men. I got to work for Frank Zappa at his house because I worked for Moon Zappa and Terry Bozio, my favorite drummer, who worked with Jeff Beck. All these things were coming together, and Quentin Tarantino. Anybody that I admired, I seemed to get to meet and work with, and that included Jerry Seinfeld. So when I worked for Frank Zappa at his house, one of the guests was Matt Groening, who invented The Simpsons, and another guy, Phil Ortiz. They just loved the act, and I ran into Phil a couple months later, uh, like yeah, like a year later, and he said, I met you at Frank's house. I said, uh, oh, wow, and he was doing drawings. He was drawing individual characters. He said, I'll Simpsonize your face. Because at the time, and for years, all I would walk around with my long hair and my headphones. And if I was talking to you, I had one headphone off. And I would wear them around my neck. And anywhere I went, I was wearing my fucking headphones, like Otto. And I didn't tell him to draw Otto. But he drew me with my arm wrapped around Otto and, and says, Brother, separated at birth. Yeah, and I looked like Otto. No chin, long hair, headphones. <laughs> Did you ever work Carson? Yeah, very close once. It was his last year I was working at the Comedy Magic Club in Hermosa Beach, and I met his talent coordinator at the time. Anybody would have known that talent coordinator's name. Talent coordinator's name escapes me now, but he was the guy. Carson's right-hand man loved the show and said, you're one of those guys, like Charles Fleischer, voice of Roger Rabbit, good friend of mine, one of the other guys. He goes, "Uh, we don't know what to do with you. Carson's coordinator, I said, well, just, just put the show on. No, it's it's one of those great shows that we just don't know how to fit it in. No, I didn't do Carson. I was really pissed about that. Is it true that you almost got the part creating the uh, marionettes for... John Malkovich. I'll tell you exactly what happened. Uh, Okay. Because I know the question you're coming to, and this is true. Spike Jones was a fan of the show. The guy who wrote being John Malkovich and Adaptation, and he's just a genius. He's a fan of the show. One day I got a call from Universal City Walk. They say, could you uh, come in a little early today? There's uh, people who want to meet you. I show up. Sure. 
their uh, production crew for being John Malkovich, this film coming out. I get out there, and there's a film crew waiting for me. And I'm not comfortable with that. It's a real film crew waiting to shoot me. And they want my show to take in to show the producers of being John Malkovich. And I said, uh, I'm not comfortable with this, but okay. And then uh, they called. They were totally interested. <laughs> they wanted me to work for them. And Deborah Joe told me, she said, don't work with them. You'll get ripped off. Don't work with them. You'll get ripped off. There's no way that they can do what they're saying they're doing. Blah, blah, blah. Comes out. His puppets are in my scale. <laughs> He's wearing a ponytail. He's looking over the same size stage, everything. It looked so familiar to me, and it was all taking place next to Universal City Walk. If you watch the shoot out of the shoot, uh, next to Universal Studios. <laughs> all this stuff looked so familiar to me, and I turned it down, and I went to Philip Huber, and uh, I don't know that I could have done anywhere near as good a job. It would have been different. It would have been my way. They didn't do entirely straight puppeteering. They did a lot of you know stop motion and stuff. But I've always felt... <laughs> that I came incredibly close to working with two of my other heroes. I love John Cusack to death for high fidelity, and I love John Malkovich for Dangerous Liaison. Yes, I was considered for and turned down the puppeteering role. I would have been training John Cusack how to operate puppets. That was a huge blunder because that film was outrageously good, and I've never been able to watch it a second time. I've seen the scenes with uh, the character, I think. The whole thing, the way that I looked at that time, the way that I was dressed at that time. The glasses that I wore at that time, it just looked so fucking, so fucking familiar. And I knew they'd offer me the part. I knew that Spike had been in my audience so many times. And I had to live with that. You live and learn. Any goals for the future? Yeah. Uh, I want to start um, a circus camp program here in the States. And I want to teach kids at risk locally and in Philadelphia area. And if not, I want to move to uh, Florida be near the woman that I'm seeing and do the exact same thing there because I think uh, my friend Neil Rempel put it best he goes we got to make room for this next up and coming generation there's some talent out there you should help them you should give uh, what you've learned instead of trying to you know hang on to what you've done I look at it this way uh, I got a lot of cool ass credits I've done some amazing stuff I did more amazing stuff than I ever thought I would and I did it all before I was I just I hit all those things that I wanted to do. Now I want to see somebody else do that. Fair enough. Well, uh, thanks for uh, talking with us. I've enjoyed it very much. As I told David Aiken, this show runs on praise. <laughs> this is my entire life runs on praise. I'm giving away too much, but I'm telling you anyway. I don't care. It's always been the same motivator. I want to be Jimi Hendrix. I want to be loved. I want to live a rock and roll lifestyle. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to be bothered. I just want to watch television and pretend that I'm studying for my job. <laughs> Lee Zimmerman, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Eric Amber. Pleasure having you in the tiny little municipality of Newark. <laughs> Delaware? Delaware? Delaware, the fuck would you come back here? You're much loved. Thank you. That's really kind of. It's really all I ever wanted. We'll see you later. Peace out. Home fries. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these stories. We throw a ridiculous amount of time into the production of each episode, then put them out into the world for free because we feel the stories and examples that are shared provide the sort of inspiration capable of elevating the craft of street theater to a higher level. 
Huge thanks to everyone who's reached out in person or via email to let us know how much they love this project. As Lee Zimmerman says, this machine runs on praise, so your feedback is super important to us. Beyond just the praise, though, if you like what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the Donate button. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content, so thanks in advance for supporting this project. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Simply go into the podcast library, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. And while you're there, please do consider leaving a review and giving us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Fame. Follow us on Twitter, Yappy, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And just before we wrap up, it seemed incredibly important to let Lee explain the intensely personal relationship he has with his Jimi Hendrix marionette. I had to have the Hendrix puppet because I can't play the guitar, and I really desperately wanted to express the music. And I started learning the guitar, and I could play the chords that he was playing. I could play the notes that he was playing, but I couldn't sound like him. I couldn't be him, and I couldn't stand on stage and be Jimi Hendrix, which is what I wanted to be. I did not want to play like Jimi Hendrix. I wanted to be Jimi Hendrix. It's no joke. So I had to have the puppet because the toy needed to exist, and it didn't. On behalf of myself, Executive Director Lindsay Lindbergh, Associate Producer Magic Bryan, Eric Amber, who both captured this interview and created the preliminary edit, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. I can't believe they got a puppet show at the improv.